Rare indeed is it for a man to be both a poet and theologian, and rarer still for a man to be a mystic of the divine being whose mysticism takes flight from the salvific sufferings of the incarnate Lord. This book will introduce you to a poet, a theologian, and mystic whose heart beats for the deepest and truest things. To dip into this book is to begin to experience the holy and wondrous mystery of the crucified Lord. Now, friends, that's a direct quote from Dr. Matthew Levering, and that's his endorsement for the inaugural inaugural publication of the Albertus Magnus Institute, a book called The Sufferings and Glory of Christ, out now, published by us, and available to our fellows in hardback exclusively, softbacks available on Amazon. Uh, check out more at magnusinstitute.org. This is a great book to read for Lent. And we're selling it right now by Father Owen Carroll. And to give you a little taste of who that man is, we're continuing in these lectures. This is Father Carroll. We've been talking about Aquinas's five ways, <laughs> and uh, we're slowly getting into it. But it's rather important to see the whole context in which he's brought up his uh, rather famous five ways. Five ways never refers to anybody else. There was a professor at Yale, Paul Weiss, who was famous in a published book of his for having developed 27 different proofs for the existence of God. (laughs) Uh, Well, Um, there are the importance of going into the five ways is not only to understand what Aquinas is saying, but to come to understand the beings around us more deeply so they can reveal the height to which they point, the height being God himself. And so the questions of truth, the certainty of truth, is really central to everything that is going on. Truth, goodness, beauty of being. And so there's a very great amount packed in, and it takes a long time to... But uh, most of the people I've read on uh, the five ways missed doing something that is essential. And that is, read the text. They figure that they take a look at it. They know what the text is saying. But uh, Aquinas is speaking in a form of Latin. It's a form of Latin highly adapted to school teaching and for purposes of um, a very direct focusing of the mind. Uh, It has a very great simplicity. 
And it's probably the very great simplicity of his language that uh, allows a lot of people to just turn it any way they want. My own approach has been uh, that uh, this is a piece of music. And if I'm going to play the music, I've got to be note perfect. I can't be hitting false notes. So, so, since this is a piece of music, in words, we have to be word perfect. And so, that's why I'm dwelling on some of the words at very great length. Wait till we get to the word motus that I warned you about. <laughs> But again, to go a bit over what we spoke of last week, we were talking about the Charitum Est. It is certain. <clears throat> that has, certainty is found in the mind. Certainty isn't really a, a quality of the table or the bottle of water, or the trees outside. Certainty, we never say to a tree or to a rock, are you certain? <laughs> it's a very human quality that uh, characterizes the presence of truth in the mind. Let me repeat that. Certainty is a quality of the human mind in knowing the truth that is before it. <clears throat> a few more words on certainty. <clears throat> Starting in the late 1200s, very late 1200s, maybe maybe even somewhere around 1285, 1290. The question of certitude of knowledge started becoming a discussion amongst theologians and philosophers. Why did that discussion concerning certainty arise at that time? Well, it was because a great number of people started finding that there was a, a distance between the mind's universal understanding and the understanding or sensing of individual beings around. And a good number of these thinkers, principally Franciscans, uh, started insisting that the universal was only to be found in the mind. So if I was going to say, the water in the bottle is good, this book is good for reading. This machine 
is more or less good. You see, I'm saying good of three different kinds of being. And I can say food is good, or you got a good haircut. Isn't that good music? Whatever. <clears throat> now you see, um, before these Franciscans and their problems with the universal, thinkers would say that when I say the water in the bottle is good, the bottle is good. The bottle is good because if the water weren't in the bottle, it would be all over the book and table and me. But those are good. The book is good. They would say there is an inherent characteristic of actual being that belongs to the water as water, to the bottle as bottle, to the book as book, and the machine as machine. So now you see that that would be to say that the good, which is universal, is somehow present to each and every single being. Now, the, these Franciscans, later on, came to be called um, nominalists, said, when I, a nominalist, say that the water is good, the bottle is good, the book is good, I'm simply putting a name onto the bottle and the same name onto the water, onto the book, whatever. So you see, for them, the universal was a structure of the mind that they could use to classify, to first of all, describe and then classify beings. What they were denying was that whatever they understood by good, that it was not an inherent characteristic of any being as singular. So a big split. Now that split went from, uh, let's say, uh, some nominalists like well, Dunscotus, Ockham, Beal, B-I-E-L, a whole bunch of them. Um, during the 13 and the 1400s, <laughs> until it came down to Descartes, who was born in 1585. Descartes, D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S. Rene Descartes. And uh, with him, this question of certitude became utterly central because uh, why did it become so central for him? Because the disappearance of any truth that uh, goodness, being, truth, uh, justice, beauty was not a characteristic of actually existing being, but just something of the mind that was put on beings 
for the convenience of our speaking about them and acting on them. <clears throat> now, that later on came to be called idealism. Now, with the Descartes, things had come to a very bad pass in France and in the schools and the, after he graduated, the circles in which he was uh, circulating. <clears throat> so he undertook a huge experiment. <clears throat> he wanted to call everything systematically into doubt because everybody was doing it but doing it piecemeal. Oh, I doubt about this, I doubt about that. He wanted to have it very systematically presented. So he started speaking about uh, where do I find certainty? Now notice he's not saying, where do I find truth? Uh, he sort of has truth in his mind. And as an example of the truth that he has in his mind, uh, he was, uh, he would say, well, when I think of a three-sided figure, a tri triangle, uh, that's a mathematical truth. And he says, I can look at three-sided figure and I know exactly and fully what it is. It's not a square, it's not a circle, it's a triangle. It's not a rhomboid or whatever. <laughs> and the, he was also, he knew the truth of numbers. So the, the, he wasn't, well, he started systematically doubting about everything. And he proceeds this way. Um, uh, since I am, uh, he has a principle for uh, the development of his system. Anything that is open to the least possibility of doubt, I will call downright false. Let's hear that again. Uh, I take, take as a principle that um, wherever I find any possibility of doubt, I'm going to call it downright false. Now notice how he's going to an extreme. Just even a little possibility of uh, doubt about a truth, he's going to call the truth downright false. He has a principle that whatever is open to any possibility of doubt about its truth, I'm going to call it downright false. It's extreme. It's extreme. In a certain sense, it's a refusal to um, sort of look 
at uh, humans and the ways of thinking and start to uh, correct errors that come up through seeing or hearing or touching or tasting or whatever. <laughs> but he says, because sometimes I'm in error or doubt uh, and error about the senses, <clears throat> I'll call any truth that comes to me through any of my senses downright false. Did he find many things were false? Did he find a lot of things were false? You'll see he found everything okay. until he hit on one point. <clears throat> Here is an example <clears throat> that's from my life. <clears throat> uh, a very close friend who was living in New York, a great music lover, and that's how we'd gotten to know each other when he was a student here at the university. <clears throat> so one late one morning, he and I were talking, and uh, he'd been to the Metropolitan Opera the night before. He lived a block away <laughs> from the Lincoln Center, uh -huh. and he was, he went to concerts practically every day. <laughs> <clears throat> he had been to an opera the night before, and uh, it was a Verdi opera by Utaba Adela, and uh, we started talking about it. <clears throat> and we talked for about 10 minutes about the opera. And when I got off the telephone, I said to myself, that was a very strange conversation. Then, uh, uh, so I phoned his mother, who lived in the city. <clears throat> they grew up in the city. One of his uncles, uh, I think, designed the, the city hall. His mother owned 3,000 acres of Point Reyes. Oh. And some of his uncles owned big ranches on Point Reyes. So they had a certain amount of money. <clears throat> so I said to uh, his mother, oh, it must have been later in the afternoon. I said, Tom and I had the strangest conversation this morning. She says, yes, he phoned me and he said, we had the strangest conversation. <laughs> <clears throat> and then it suddenly struck me as I'd read a newspaper in the meantime. I'd read the New York Times and they'd had a, a review of the premiere of the opera at the Metropolitan that my friend had gone to hear. <clears throat> when he said Verdi's Attila and that, I heard him saying Verdi's Otello, a very late opera of Verdi's. But the opera he had heard was Attila, the Hun, Attila a very early opera. So for 10 minutes, we were talking by each other. Huh. Now you see, I was able to clarify the situation because of the review in the New York Times. Descartes, with any of his examples about mistaken 
seeing of things, hearing of things, whatever, uh, didn't think it was important to look more deeply into the sensation and correct it from within, which we do all the time. Somebody says something to you, and they'll say, what? <laughs> and the, the, So we mutually correct each other and ourselves by going more deeply into the senses. That's going to be important when we come to this part of the acquaintances. Uh, so sense sensations for Descartes then, since they're open to doubt. You see somebody in the distance and you say to somebody, oh, there's so-and-so. And they look and they say, no, I think it's so-and-so. What do both of you have to do? You have to keep looking until they get closer so you can reef, sort of renew, renew your sensation. So sensations are wiped out as entirely false. That is, the sensations cannot be a source of truth for humans. Now already, isn't there a huge withdrawal from the world? And aren't you sort of isolating yourself from all of the surrounding world? But do you remember in a previous session when... Uh, I was asking you if you heard this before, and I went into the detail that this is affecting the rest of the universe on the basis of what a mathematician physicist did, calculate the force of one butterfly wing on the extremity of the uh, uh, universe. So Descartes, in effect then, is withdrawing not only from the immediate world around him, but from the entire universe. And he's not allowing uh, the bottle and the water in it or the coin to enter into him. Or if it does enter into him, he can say he doesn't really go into this, but he would have to consider some kind of form of violence uh, because it's bringing error or the possibility of error into his life. So you see what a strange kind of human being he makes himself into. Yeah, that becomes the model of humanity for a great amount of Europe, particularly Northern Europe. Um, How could you exist that way? Uh, I mean, if nothing was, if you weren't, yeah. Well, aren't you going to be living in extreme fear all the time? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Maybe to, to We'll see as we go along. He was highly, very strongly 
opinionated. <laughs> he didn't really allow things to bother him. This was uh, this was uh, he called it a method that he wanted to develop so as to attain to a certain. But we'll come back on that point again. He, in some ways, was a strange fellow. Yeah. Later on, when he became uh, internationally known, he became a European figure. When he was about 24 or 5, and I'll tell you why he became such an international figure, but he became a major European intellectual. Excuse me for a moment. Steph, do you want me to move back? No. Do you want me to move back to the table? I can do it. Oh, okay. Good. The, um, when he was a very established uh, European philosopher and scientist, he read about Harvey in England and Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood. It was a, a very important uh, biological um, movement ahead, an important discovery for us. Uh, but Harvey was the first one to do it. <laughs> so... Descartes was impressed, and he wrote a letter to Harvey. And in the letter, he, in effect, says, Congratulations, you made that discovery according to my method. And his method had nothing at all to do with Harvey's dis uh, discovery. Huh. But you see where... Descartes was a little bit uh, taken by himself. Yeah. <laughs> what is Descartes, the 16th century? He was born in 1585 and died in 1650. More 17th century. More 17th century. Uh, he, he would have really, yes, he would have done his important work um, Around, from about 1625 onward. Uh, Wasn't he sort of depressed? Wasn't he sort of depressed? No, no. But he didn't have faith in so many things. Um, yes, because at a certain point, he does find certainty. Oh. <laughs> He had some sort of condition where he said, doctor told him to stay in bed late every morning. Yes, he was. Not time to think. He was from a, a minor noble family. And uh, his health wasn't very good, but his, his father got him into a Jesuit college near their home. And the Jesuit college was called La Fleche meaning the arrow. <laughs> but it was one of those great Jesuit schools uh, 
And at that time, I think we have to say that the, the Jesuits of that time were the educators of Europe. Um, they didn't always keep up that reputation. And in, since a bit before the Second Vatican Council, they started spiraling down. Uh, um, so this is Descartes' first consideration of the senses it cannot be a possibility of attaining to certainty of truth. So he takes another step. <clears throat> he says he talks about knowing, the mind knowing. Because sometimes even he makes a mistake. That's a, a quote from him. Even he makes a mistake in geometric reasoning. Then he calls all the activities of the mind into doubt. Now when he says, even I can make a mistake in geometry, uh, he was, well, he was the premier cut of the future of geometry. He was the major geometrician in Europe because of his work in geometry. So let me speak about his work in geometry. <clears throat> uh, when he was at uh, La Fleche, because his health wasn't very cold, and no place had central heating, <laughs> and religious houses usually had one room that was heated. Uh, that was the, a model taken from the uh, Benedictine rule that there had to be one room in the monastery where monks who needed it could uh, get warm and where the older monks who needed warmth would get it instead of sitting in the kitchen. <clears throat> but he, um, he was allowed to sleep in and... Uh, he actually didn't sleep in. He stayed in bed because he could keep warm under the covers. But he, he did his work as well. <clears throat> um, he graduates and uh, his father enlists him in, I think it's the Duke of Brunswick's army. Uh, the Duke of Brunswick in what we now call Germany, <laughs> the southwestern end of it. <clears throat> uh, there were all kinds of wars going on. And as a young nobleman, D Descartes had to learn how to be a noble nobleman, which basically meant a warrior. And that was a, a way of life that goes way back into Homer. 800 BC, the whole story of the Iliad 
is about warriors. But in 800 BC, Homer is describing life that's going back to maybe 1200 BC. So it's a long history of nobility and uh, warfare. It explains why that uh, certain territories or forests in a kingdom were reserved to the king. Because part, part of preparing yourself for warfare was not only uh, riding a horse, but hunting, hunting down somebody, a, a boar, and uh, getting it with a, a spear. I've told, uh, maybe you've heard this story before. I lived in a little t town, and the, up in a long block away from where we were in the first block was a, an English family by the name of Blissett. And um, I was particularly friendly with the son of the family because uh, who was an older man. The son of the family and my father were very, very close friends. But Mr. Blissett, the father of that family, was an old man when I knew him. He had fought with Kitchener in the Sudan at Khartoum in 1898 as a lancer. He was fighting with a, a spear and a short sword. So this, this sort of ideal of a human as a, a warrior was very much part of Descartes' formation. <laughs> Nowadays, to be a warrior, all you need to know is how to press a button. <laughs> He's enlisted in the Duke of Brunswick's uh, army, and warfare in those days was a very leisurely business. Um, when it was bad weather, you couldn't fight because the fields would turn to mud. And the horses wouldn't be able to, the foot soldiers wouldn't be able to maneuver or anything of that sort. Or even if you made a charge in the morning and then fell back to regroup, it would maybe take you the rest of the day to regroup. So it was a very, very leisurely thing. <laughs> uh, an example of that. <laughs> Hegel, in uh, about 1801 or two, is living in a German city called Jena, J-E-N-A. And he's at the university there. Um, and uh, he can, in his house where he's living, 
he can hear Napoleon at battle against German troops in a field outside the city. He can hear the gunfighting. People from Jena or Weimar, which was near enough. Goethe was living in Weimar at that time, and he was a big European intellectual. People would take picnic baskets and go up and sit on the hillsides and watch the battle. That's how limited it was. Nowadays, look what look at what Russia is doing to Ukraine. Well, <laughs> Descartes uh, is more or less immobilized during the winter, and uh, so he's living in a wooden farmhouse, and uh, it's very, very highly heated. He wanted heat. And while he's there, he's working on a problem that he'd learned at the Jesuit school, La Fleche. Now, don't forget the Jesuit were the, the educators of Europe at that time. Why? Because they were traveling all around the world and learning everything that could be learned in all of these new places. And <clears throat> so they would uh, go someplace and they'd come back uh, a big expert on uh, herbs, medicine, or somebody maybe in Eastern Europe or Russia had made some advances in a mathematics. So they'd come back and they'd be teaching that. So many of the teachers were at the cutting edge of the scientific future. And so Descartes was being educated into that. So a problem had come up. And it's one that exercised Descartes very greatly. And he really made a massive step forward with the problem. And that's what established his uh, European reputation. It's the question of putting um, figures and numbers together. So figures, geometry. Numbers, uh, mathematics. And from the time of the Pythagoreans, let's say somewhere around five, 550 BC, so well before Plato, they said that um, what really made things to be as real as they are were numbers. And I'd given you the example earlier of the basic Pythagorean figure 
that is in a sense, it's a, it's a figure, a triangle. It said that Pythagoras had discovered <coughs> that the strings on a, a lute or a harp or whatever, uh, um, that the sound that came out of it was in proportion to its length. <laughs> so that uh, the length and the nature of the sound were very, very deeply connected. That is, the sound came from the vibrating string. But the it was the vibrations of the, the proportion of this string and the proportion of this string to that string, like a violin. Um, so, um, generally the discussions in the books I've read uh, keep saying that the Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans uh, said everything was more or less made up of numbers. Well, I don't think that's quite true. I think what has to be said is that uh, everything is made up of proportions. <laughs> the relation of this side to this side, or, you know, the proportions of this side to that side, which you can number. But you see, it's always the numbering of proportions. If you just continue to look at me, you're seeing proportions, but you're no longer paying any attention to them. What do you see about my face? Your nose is perpendicular to your chin. Yes. But half of it. Half of it. You're seeing half of it, but aren't you really beginning to penetrate into the symmetry of my face? And look, two eyebrows that are symmetric to each other, two nostrils, uh, two lips, <laughs> two ears, only one head. <laughs> but, it, but you see the symmetry of one hand and the other hand, one foot and the other foot. Um, and, you know, the ribs are symmetrical. My shoulders are symmetrical. So you see, the, the, all of these can be numbered. But you see, we're numbering something that is proportioned to itself. But because the proportions could be expressed in numbers, um, people took, a sh I guess, a shortcut and started saying, well, everything is composed of numbers. But I think they basically lost the real discovery of Pythagoras, that Beings uh, exist in actual proportions 
to each other. Now that was a, a that understanding was very much alive for centuries. We don't seem to pay much attention to it unless we happen to see that somebody's been injured or something like that. But <laughs> there was a preacher who at uh, one time speaking to his congregation to explain something, said, well, you know, that what I'm talking about would be as strange as to see somebody who only has one eyebrow. Now, you see, he's pointing people to the symmetry, the proportion. And his audience followed him. Now, uh, I forget if it's in the same sermon or another one. He's talking to the same parishioners. And uh, he's, to illustrate his point on a matter of uh, dogma, he says, it would be the same as if you saw a man who didn't have any nipples because where was he preaching? He was preaching in North Africa. So a lot of people, a lot of men were going around bare torso. But you see, he was directing their attention to the proportions. So if you think of a face without one eyebrow, it's going to be a bit of the symmetry, the proportions are going to be in disorder. You see, so... Symmetry, proportions, means order. Uh, this is truly related to that. <clears throat> Who was this preacher? St. Augustine. If we heard my father, uh, Bishop Michael Barber, talking about men's torso without nipples, what would people do to him? Take him off to the loony score? Because Freud has so sexualized everything that uh, when I, this is when I was growing up, it was the common language not to call men's chest muscles pectorals. They were called breasts. Are do any of you familiar with that usage? That men's, what we now call pectorals, were called breasts. And I remember when I was first teaching in Cincinnati in 1959, 1960, um, in a class or in a conversation, I referred to men's breasts. And no, I was corrected. No, no, you have to call them pectorals. There was another English word, and it somewhat applied to females too. I think maybe it was farm language. They were the breasts were referred to as lugs, L-U-G-S. Huh. I must look that up in the OED. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> but uh, nowadays, uh, uh, if a bishop were to get up and talk that way to his congregation, 
Yeah. Well, you might get a transfer out of it. You might get a transfer out of it. <laughs> Very often, uh, a difficult bishop or a bishop in difficulty was promoted to Rome and given a, a desk nowhere to uh, work things out, <laughs> promoted upward beyond their capabilities. But that happens all the time. You see, the for Descartes, the um, forms or figures um, such as in geometry and arithmetic, practically speaking, people were connecting figures and numbers. And uh, I don't know if I've asked you as a group. <laughs> um, I'm asking, well, I'll ask you the question. It's always worth repeating. <laughs> uh, the sum of the interior angles of a right angle equal what? The sum of the interior angles of a, uh, a right triangle. of a triangle of a right uh, a right triangle okay. yeah does it apply to all triangles all triangles oh okay good thank you <laughs> um, equals what now I used to ask this in particularly in my freshman classes. And the answer I would invariably get is 180 degrees. But now you see, if we look at the question. Two right angles. Two right angles. Two right angles, yes. And that's what we would look at. Yeah, that would be the answer. That's the geometrical answer. Right. You see, the question is posed in terms of geometrical realities. The sum of the angles of a right hand, right angle triangle equals, and the answer has to be in terms of uh, geometrical reality. You can't. Why, why can't it be in the number of degrees? The, because <clears throat> examine two, examine five. Where are you going to find a point, an angle, a line, an angle? Does, a, does two or five, odd and even number, say anything at all about any of the basic geometrical realities? Like, does two say point, line, angle, closed figure? No. Two has nothing to do with a geometrical figure. We're taking one way of knowing and putting it on another way of knowing. Practically speaking, very, very important. But there was no way of showing with certainty if that's the way it had to be. <clears throat> so Descartes, in this overheated uh, farm room, 
came up with a discovery, and it was called analytic geometry. And uh, did you have any in high school or college? Yeah. No. We have his name on it. Cartesian coordinates. Yes. So, I don't know if you... And, you know, there were... It was done on graph. I can never remember. Why? I was going to say... I was going to say the X. And this would be the X coordinate. So, these are the Cartesian coordinates. And with the graph paper... You could take something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you were able to plot it. So if you were going to take a major example of beauty, let's say a Greek vase, you could reduce the form of beauty to number. So you could change figure geometry into number, and you could reverse it. You could go from number to figure. Now you see, with all the astronomers at that time, there'd be all kinds of stars around. And then all of a sudden, there'd be this star that would just go through the whole bunch, a planet. Planet means wanderer in Greek. Uh, or sometimes a planet would seem to go this way and then come back this way. Or, <clears throat> I've just gone blank. Retrograde. Ah, the... Um, plotting the eclipses of the moon, the movement of the sun. You see, this was going to be an enormous advance for astronomy. And astronomy at that time was part of what they called natural philosophy, uh, and in ways, the beginning of modern physics. So the Descartes' accomplishment was an extraordinarily great accomplishment. And that's what made his reputation. And that's why all the rest of his life, people would say, but you know, you say do this, this, and this, but I don't follow it. And his answer to them was, start over at the beginning. He was always so confident because of this discovery. That's why he could tell Harvey, you made the discovery according to my method. Peace and nonsense. But uh, you see, the importance of certainty. <laughs> We've spoken about the uncertainty of the senses, uncertainty of even geometrical realities. Even I can make a mistake in geometry. He's pointing to himself. So he wipes out knowing. The next stage is he wipes out the difference between being 
awake and asleep. We sometimes dream that we're awake. There's a real confusion, uncertainty. Am I really awake? Am I dreaming? And people after that start saying, oh, is the whole world a dream? (laughs) But we'll take that up uh, next week. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.